Welcome to this Stroke Journey podcast, brought to you by the National Stroke Education Center at the University of Cincinnati, your premier source for comprehensive diagnostic and therapeutic stroke education from the pre-hospital and emergency settings through the ICU and rehabilitation. Please welcome today's host, Dr. Jordan Bonomo. Hello, and thanks for being here today with us at the National Stroke Education Center. I'm Jordan Bonomo. I'm an emergency medicine and neurocritical care faculty member at the University of Cincinnati. And I have with me today an outstanding expert and guest and really good friend of mine named Aaron Grossman. He's an MD, PhD who hangs out here in Cincinnati and graces us with his expertise in neurointerventional stroke and all things neurology. I'm going to have him introduce himself here too. Uh, really excited to have you here, Aaron. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Jordan. I'm Aaron Grossman. I'm one of the stroke neurologists and neurointerventionalists here at University of Cincinnati. I've been here for six years and uh, seen the world of neurointervention from stroke really explode. It's very exciting. And Aaron had the misfortune, as I remember, to actually be a fellow right around the time I was junior faculty. So we, uh, we stumbled our way through a bunch of stuff together. And since then, um, I've gotten a chance to watch Aaron become this national expert in what he does. And I'm ecstatic to have him here today. And Aaron, if it's okay with you, we're going to just spend a few minutes talking about the future of neurointervention. And before we get there, if I could ask you to share with your colleagues out there, emergency physicians and non-stroke neurologists who don't really know much about neurointerventional management of stroke, share with them what the most important things are in your mind that they should know. I think the most important thing to know is how to select patients for interventional procedures for, for mechanical and aspiration thrombectomy. Um, basically, uh, what we do is uh, we perform uh, cerebral angiogram, typically femoral artery and, uh, or radial artery approach, and go up and pull the blood clot out to restore f blood flow and therefore restore function. The two of those are correlated, right? This isn't like the old days where we could recannulate something, but we weren't sure whether it mattered for functional outcomes. Now we've proven that they matter. Yeah. If you can get that vessel open quickly and restore perfusion to the brain, then more often than not, hopefully, uh, the, the patient will improve substantially. And the trick is to figure out who to reperfuse and who to leave alone. Why can't you just reperfuse them all? I mean, I guess there's some who are just so far gone, leaving them alone makes sense, but why can't you try with everyone? The, the thought being that, that if we uh, open up brain tissue that's already dead, that blood will flow back in and cause reperfusion hemorrhage. And we're just not in the business of making people worse. Okay. So reperfusion hemorrhage sounds like a bad thing. Technically, when you go in to do your procedure, is there anything you'd want us to know that you're thinking about? Anything that we can do to facilitate that when we're trying to decide which patients to send to you? Does it matter? Yeah. I mean, the indications for reperfusion therapy have been established by the trials, but there is a lot of mission creep there. It's sort of center specific how much mission creep there is in terms of of how far outside the guidelines individual uh, interventionalists or, or groups of interventionalists are willing to tread. Uh, here at Cincinnati, we're quite aggressive. So most of us will take anybody who has a, an even slim shot at doing better. So if you are in a nursing home, if you have some, some pre-existing disability, uh, if it's a distal 
thrombus. Almost all of those people, uh, we are at least willing to, to try to reperfuse the, that brain because we think it can be done generally safely. And, and so it's, it's only the patients who really uh, we are going to make worse or who very clearly have no chance of getting better uh, that, that we are going to turn down. All right. Walk me through the logistics. Walk me through a patient who's being evaluated for reperfusion therapy, right? So they show up in an emergency department. They have an obvious stroke syndrome that's severe, right? Because we're doing this for severe patients, right? Not minors generally, or the low stroke scores. So it's if somebody's got a severe stroke, and we uh, we recognize that, and we call you when we say, hey, last known well was 25 minutes ago, right? What are you doing? What are you telling me to do? And they haven't had any imaging yet. No, let's start with that. No imaging, right? Tabi the Rasa, fresh patient. You get to direct it like the king you are. So the first thing I want to know is, is this deficit caused by a hemorrhage? If it's caused by a hemorrhage, there's not much role for me as a, as a stroke neurointerventionalist. There are all kinds of other hemorrhagic causes, which uh, we can get into, but that's the first thing. Okay. And so we start with the basics. We get a non-con head CT. There's no blood. Now we're at, uh, I don't know, 40 minutes from onset. Ideally, that non-con head CT is paired with a CT angiogram of the head and neck. The reason we like the neck is because it helps us figure out whether there's a cervical occlusion uh, and potentially uh, pick the right tools to navigate quickly up to, the, up to the intracranial occlusion if there is one. So this is an important message for people who don't live in the stroke world and do emergency care of stroke patients. If I heard you right, a severe stroke needs a CTCTA as part of that initial workup. Whereas in the past, we've had a little bit more discretion about who gets a CTA and maybe not. But if I'm hearing you right, everyone, CTCTA, if it's something we're considering potential intervention. The barriers to doing that are, are less high at a, at a tertiary center. Out in the community, it's difficult. That's a difficult sell because what happens is that everybody with a deficit ends up getting a CT angiogram and you overwhelm your radiologists. Whereas those patients may have ultimately left the hospital with a, a carotid ultrasound at the end of their hospitalization. But I think that a CT angiogram, again, head and neck, will pick up a lot of stuff that is of immense value in, in assessing stroke etiology down the road, but certainly in the, in the immediate uh, you know, acute management of ischemic stroke patients, that, that's critical. And not just a head, not just CT angiogram of the head, but, but actually knowing if there is a cervical carotid occlusion, where that occlusion starts and how, how we're going to go about managing it. So we've got this acute stroke patient, we've gotten the CT, there's no blood, it got a CTA, it shows you, let's say, a proximal left M1, and now we're an hour in. Are you getting a perfusion study? An hour in, no. The perfusion studies, uh, even if they show a large core uh, infarct, are uh, not entirely valid in the first six hours. So we really only reserve those for patients outside of the first six hours of, of last seen normal, uh, or with no last seen normal. Okay. So this person's clearly within that six hour window. We're not going to get a CT perfusion. We're going to go to your happy place, right? We're going to the neuroangio suite. When I walk into a neuroangio suite, what's it look like? I've never been in one. Yeah. So what I explain to patients is there's an x-ray machine up in front, up above their head. There's an x-ray machine on the side. They're going to rotate around their head uh, continuously throughout the procedure. They'll lie flat on their back. These procedures can last a long time, so ideally the patient has a Foley catheter in place. 
patients who are having an acute stroke can be a bit unruly, uh, sometimes uh, have difficulty following commands. So we tend to put soft restraints on all four extremities and secure them accordingly. Uh, and we'll start to uh, make a small incision uh, at the top of the femoral, you know, in the femoral artery and rarely but increasingly uh, in the radial artery and start to pass that wire past the kidneys, past the heart, into the cervical uh, carotid or vertebral arteries. All right. And what you're describing, that small incision, that for us who do this, this is Seldinger technique, right? So you're putting a sheath in, then you're running some wires up, right? So you, you run your wire up and you take your first look. What do you do? What's it actually look like? Are you, are you squeezing contrast in? You're twisting it? What's, what happens, man? Yes. We're excited. Yes. Yeah, so we don't get to see this. We have a syringe full of contrast. Uh, we're putting it into a tube of plastic, basically, a catheter, and stepping on a fluoro pedal. So the, the fluoro Endoscopy pedal uh, allows us to see a video image of the dye as it runs through the neck and head. Uh, that dye, uh, that image is, is subtracted from uh, a baseline x-ray of the head and neck or whatever we're looking at. So basically what we're seeing is a blank white screen with dark contrast dye uh, showing us the vascular anatomy. And what we're looking for is any uh, irregularities, either cervical carotid uh, disease uh, in, in an anterior circulation stroke or into the head, large vessel cutoffs or, or occlusions uh, that represent the location of the thrombus. So for those people playing at home, you just described digital subtraction and geography, right? That's the DSA we always read about, that fancy stuff that you guys do to see where the contrast is going. You've removed a bunch of the landmarks. So it's easier for you to just see the vasculature, right? Yeah. All right. Black image on a white background. Great. So you do the DSA, you see your cutoff, and now you're thinking to yourself, great, I got a chance to heal this person, right? I'm going to save him. What do you do next? So once we get a, a stable position in the carotid artery with a catheter that's really flexible uh, at the distal or, or far edges of the catheter and pretty, and pretty uh, firm along the more proximal portion of the catheter so that it's stable as we, as we traverse that aortic arch, uh, we pass a smaller catheter about the size of a spring, string of spaghetti with a little uh, tiny wire in it. And then behind that, we'll pass a catheter that is a reperfusion catheter, basically very flexible distal tip and able to get to the, to the clot pretty, pretty easily. So you get to the clot. Now what do you do to it? Yeah, so, so there's, there's two approaches here. One is called aspiration thrombectomy in which we take that flexible catheter right up to the face of the clot. Uh, some people don't like to cross the clot, they just like to bring that catheter right up to the face of it and then turn on a very high-powered vacuum cleaner. That sucks the clot into the catheter, ideally doesn't damage the endothelium that well or the inner lining of the blood vessel, and much of the time restore the blood flow uh, to the brain with just suction alone. Other people do a procedure called a mechanical thrombectomy where they leave that, that uh, larger catheter out of it and they bring that tiny catheter the size of the string of spaghetti up into the blood vessel through the clot and then they lay down uh, basically a stent on a string, we call it a stent retriever, to intercalate into the clot, the metal tines of that basically incorporate into the clot and then after a couple of minutes we pull that out, uh, we try to suck as much as we can uh, as it comes back down, and that's uh, an effort to mechanically uh, remove the clot. We try to do both 
aspiration and mechanical thrombectomy together if our initial attempts at aspiration are unsuccessful. So the mechanical piece is a bit of a backup if you can't just aspirate it. That's how we do it. A lot of people are first-line mechanical uh, thrombectomy folks. Some people are first-line aspiration folks. There's, there's a bit of uh, cost uh, consideration to it. We basically uh, will try to do the cheapest, most effective thing first. And if we need to uh, use those stent retrievers as a backup, we will do so. What I heard there was you look for cost-effective therapies at every opportunity. We true, we do. All right, I like yeah. that. So you get the you get the clot out, and then you reperfuse them. And it seems to me that many of these patients get better almost immediately in front of you. It's sort of a hemi-Lazarus effect. Not all of them, but you've certainly seen that, right? It is really exciting to see. And it's most exciting after we've seen a few of them for our staff in the angio suite to see them. Because that staff is getting up at 2, 3 in the morning, day after day, and a patient who all of a sudden starts talking again, starts moving that side, starts to say thank you to the staff on the table after they've, they've recovered for their stroke, from their stroke within the first 15 minutes or so. That's really rewarding to everybody. Yeah, that sounds like it would be pretty meaningful. So I grew up during the era of the initial interventional trials, the ones where we said it doesn't work, right? The complication rates are too high. We were ineffective. We had these devices that we found out could open vessels, but we couldn't find a clinical signal that it was meaningful. We've clearly passed beyond that now with stent retrievers and aspiration catheters that you just described. So we're on this horizon line now, Aaron. What's next? What's three to five years from now? What's stroke care going to look like? When I come in after my huge holiday dinner with my big embolic stroke, what are you going to be doing to me in five or 10 years? I don't know that stroke care is going to look all that different for you. I think stroke care is going to look different for the folks on the margins of the existing indications. So right now, uh, the, the American Heart and American Stroke Association are, are saying that we should do all of the things we're currently doing for you when you come in within the first six hours or if you have favorable penumbral imaging in the six to 24 hour period. But what if, if your son comes in, he's under 18, currently there's no real data for that. We're obtaining data. What if you come in with a distal occlusion that's harder to get to? We should have better technology, better smaller stent retrievers uh, to get to those distal occlusions. We should have smaller uh, aspiration catheters to get there. Um, perhaps the physics of aspiration will improve. What about patients who have their strokes in the posterior circulation, basilar artery strokes? There's a debate ongoing as to, as to whether that's truly effective with a couple of recent trials suggesting that it might not be. Um, what about patients who have a large uh, area of brain that's already dead, a large ischemic core already seen on their initial non-con-hedge CT? Uh, will those patients still benefit? Can we save them a decompressive a hemicraniectomy or a, a surgery that removes the skull, although they'll still have deficits, maybe survive when they might not have survived. These are on the margins of, uh, of the current therapies and the current indications for therapy. I think there'll be a lot of expansion for that. The other thing you mentioned, sorry, uh, is, is that we are doing this for severe strokes right now. But one of the most exciting things about the next few years is that the, we're starting a trial uh, in which we're seeing what happens to patients who have uh, clots in the brain that we can see, but might not present with severe deficits, might present with, with uh, language problems or mild, mild uh, weakness that we sometimes see get worse and worse and worse over the course of their ICU stay, only to not be able to help them 
uh, by the time they they become significantly worse. So this trial will will bring patients either to endovascular therapy for thrombectomy right when they hit the door with their mild deficits, or they'll be compared to patients who, who start out with the medical therapy and then may end up within, with thrombectomy, just to see whether we should be taking them, them early or, or, or not. So you're talking about endovascular therapy for low stroke scores? That's correct. I wonder if there were a pithy name that someone could come up with for that trial. Like, like the endolow trial? Is that what it's called, endolow? Wow. Didn't see that coming. U-stroke trialists have pretty amazing names for your trials. A lot of acronyms. Dr. Grossman, thanks for spending the time with us today. Before I let you go, I'm going to ask you a question. Would you come back and talk to us about posterior circulation and basilar strokes? We'd love to. You just mentioned there are a couple of trials that say it might not be effective, but deep down inside, I want you running that wire into my head if I have a basilar. I think this is another topic that people could hear uh, about and learn quite a bit. Yeah, no one really knows what quite quite what to do, but it just feels wrong to leave patients to be, to get locked in. But we'll bring you back and we'll talk about that next time if that's okay. Wonderful. Aaron, thank you so much for your time today and thank you for listening to our podcast. Thanks for listening today. This Stroke Journey podcast is a collaboration between the National Stroke Education Center, M. Craig International, and MedEd On The Go. For more comprehensive, high-quality educational resources for healthcare professionals, please visit strokejourney.com.